There is an incredible scene at the beginning of Irene Sola's novel When I Sing Mountains Dance, where the poet-farmer Dominic is struck by lightning as he attempts, in the midst of a thunderstorm, to release a calf that has got its tail stuck in a tangle of barbed wire. The passage in the novel is narrated by the elements, the lightning and the thunder and the rain, who explain to us readers, using our human language, but framed in their elemental dispassion, how the lightning strike will erase Dominic from the rest of the book, leaving two cows, a bunch of pigs and hens, a dog, two roving cats, an old man, his father, as well as his wife Seal and their two young children, to fend for themselves and each other in this beautiful but unforgiving rural Pyrenees landscape where the novel is set. Here's how the thunder and rain describe the scene. The knife had called to the lightning. The lightning had hit the man's head, bull's eye. It had parted his hair right down the middle, and the cows had fled in a frenzy like in some slapstick comedy. Someone should write a song about the man's hair and the lightning comb putting pearls in his hair in the song white like the gleam of the knife and include something about his body and his open lips and his light eyes like cups filling with rain about his face so lovely on the outside and so burned on the inside and about the torrential water that fell onto his chest and rushed beneath his back as if it wanted to carry him off and about his hands the song would tell, stumpy and thick and calloused, one open like a flower expecting a bee, the other gripping the knife like tree roots swallowing a rock. When we are struck by a bolt of existential lightning in our lives, a bolt of lightning like the one we see on the tarot card called the Tower, which results in a kind of free-fall mayhem, plans and intentions as well as bodies and minds being suddenly flung into shocking disarray. Our nervous system offers us two forms of response, the burning fires of agitation and resistance, but also the ice-cold embrace of numb indifference and detachment. When I am burning, for it seems like burning is what I mostly do when lightning strikes, being made from a material that is all too flammable, I sometimes dream of being numb, of being enveloped in a block of ice, insentient and detached. Even the word numb is a kind of anaesthetized utterance. Just announcing it, the mouth finds itself curling around that torpid, almost stupefied syllable, numb. Not that dissimilar to how we might utter the more resolute word, om. Everything held inside, contained and closed within the internal echo chamber of the psyche. Om, numb, om, numb. Om, numb. This sound, or something like it, is what I used to hear on a daily basis when I lived above Reef, a Russian hairdresser I knew in Milan. Reef was a gay, unflappable follower of the 12th century Japanese Buddhist priest Nichiren, who believed that the Lotus Sutra, out of all the Buddhist teachings, held within its text everything we need in order to steer existence towards a more peaceful way of being and doing. 
The Lotus Sutra talks of enlightenment as something not to be won, but as always available to us if we can only tune into its frequency. Nichiren counseled his followers to chant Nam Myo Renge Kyo, Nam Myo Renge Kyo, Nam Myo Renge Kyo, over and over again, preferably in a kind of throaty, vagus nerve stimulating way. So a bit more like Nam Myo Renge Kyo, Nam Myo Renge Kyo, Nam Myo Renge Kyo, Nam Myo Renge Kyo, something like that. The mantra Nam Myo Renge Kyo, if it were a tweet or an Instagram post, would simply be translated as I heart the Lotus Sutra. It might seem surprising that you would choose to chant this not especially edifying set of syllables over and over again for the rest of your life. I heart the Lotus Sutra. I heart the Lotus Sutra. I heart the Lotus Sutra. (laughs) You know, it's the kind of mantra that points to the source of its wisdom, shall we say, rather than encapsulating some discreet message in an attempt to distill the wisdom it points to as if it recognizes that language itself, more often than not, lets us down in this regard. It was Reef who lent me one day, after my monthly haircut, Shunryo Suzuki's Zen Mind Beginner's Mind in that pale blue Ubaldini version of the book in Italian. It was Reef who set me on a journey that in some way has brought me here. There are so many beautiful Russian people in this world, Let us not forget that in our current Putin-focused fury. When Reef and his Sokka Gakkai chums would chant together Nam Yorenge Kyo, I got the sense that the language and the togetherness not only provided a social and spiritual incandescence, but perhaps that part of the human heart that suffers, at least in these moments of chanting mutuality, would go silent, even numb, but in a good way. Just like an anaesthetic numbs us to the surgeon's scalpel, sores and other blades. Who would deny us that kind of kindness? What kind of God, you might say, would deny us the ability to numb our pain? Not any of the gods that we, on, we know of other than some of the Greek gods. Unless by numbing we mean praying, and maybe we do. As we chant, centred or anchored in sound and being, there are figures plummeting at perilous speed from a tower struck by lightning, and they are falling fast. The habitable parts of the tower now are engulfed in flames, everything literally up in the air and falling. Fire and ice, burning or numb, these two figures in freefall represent two settings of the same inner dial, two ways of responding to our collisions with life. For one person, the dial is turned by life to a ten and they burn, and for another, it's turned to a zero where they stay frozen until able to emerge again and live as mortal creatures. Unsurprisingly, These two people are incapable of relating to each other in any way other than to recognize their shared ejection from whatever tower of purpose or security has suddenly forced them out into the void of free-falling feeling. Some say the world will end in fire, writes Robert Frost. Some say in ice. This is the first line of a poem which was published in Harper's Magazine over a hundred years ago. One story regarding the inspiration for Foss, Fire and Ice is that it came out of a discussion with Harlow Shapley, the astronomer, 
When asked how our planet and our apex species might cease to exist, Shapley gave Frost the option of either fire, a solar explosion which would incinerate the Earth, or alternatively, the arrival of a new ice age, and with it, this Gaia Goldilocks realm, this Earth becoming uninhabitable for the fragile primates who exist in its temperate climes. Probably still okay ice-wise, it would be for those amongst us who maybe identify as bison and moose, or musk ox, voles, moles, pack rats, but not for the Homo sapien. Fire would probably incinerate most of the mammals on this planet. This conversation between the poet and the astronomer occurred in a pre-nuclear age, with Hiroshima and Nagasaki still many decades in the future. The question of how the world might end for all of us, collectively, remains a painfully pertinent one in this Anthropocene of climate collapse, combined with that primate psychopathy which somehow gets its kicks from threatening those in its way with whatever it's got, nuclear, chemical, whatever gets the job done. Frost has peered deeply into his own and maybe other human hearts and reminds us, using the most subtle of alerts, irony, that our fight-flight-freeze options for dealing with stress more often than not end in dissolution or termination, neither of which might further our cause. From what I've tasted of desire, the poem continues to relate, I hold with those who favour fire, but if it had to perish twice. The it here refers to the world, although I quite like that sort of Nietzschean recurrence idea of if I had to perish twice. And that's how I've learnt it, because I have learnt this poem by heart. If I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. If you consider that one in two marriages and a much higher percentage of non-espoused unions end in fighting and emotional carnage, if we can't even maintain ongoing support and tolerance for those we profess to care deeply about, if we can't work on consistent peacemaking with those we supposedly love, is it any surprise that we serve caliber cruise missiles and self-propelled howitzers on human animals who get in the way of what we desire? What are others to us at this level but fodder for our ever-changing whims and wants? And maybe even less of a surprise that those self-propelled howitzers are all named, half ironically, half sadistically, after flowers. Peony, hyacinth and acacia are monikers that can be found in Russia's artillery units. If we're going to exterminate someone at a physical or a metaphysical level, isn't it best we do it at least under the semblance of kindness, followed by some nice flowers and heart emojis attached to whatever conclusive messaging puts an end to the infinite game of relating to another with love? Killing someone with kindness with a bomb named after a flower is surely always better because kinder than a cleaver to the frontal lobes. This is a key human-animal fantasy when it comes to feeling good about ourselves and the selves we, we narrate into this world. Whichever side we're fighting on or for, we tell that self that surely we are right to feel this way and to also then act and be this way. And right will always, of course, uphold might.
or anything else we attach to it. Take this tower, the tower on the tarot card, but also the tower we build inside ourselves from beliefs and convictions, our own personal mythos. If this discarnate tower is ego, then the lightning bolt that strikes at our turret and knocks the crown of self off our heads is clearly a direct attack on the ego. And who knows where this corrective attack, whether disciplinary, punitive or remedial, should come from. Perhaps from life itself, that might tire after a while from the very particular human belief that we are apart from it, that we can create our so-called lives in the realm of mere thought, expectation and desire, when we are more likely just to be woven into everything else, with life capital L, regardless of what we want. Recently, I've been watching giant waterfalls on YouTube, spilling their millions if not billions of tons of water into vast valleys spreading infinitely in all directions below. There is something in this crashing, collapsing, plummeting, dropping and descending energy, this violent, though also graceful, plunge into nothingness, this vast, random matrix pouring out its, its living in an endless series of fall that seems to soothe as well as appall the viewer who watches, the me who takes it all in. If we cannot free ourselves peacefully, then the forces of life will arrange an explosion, writes Rachel Pollack in, the se in 78 Degrees of Wisdom. I do not mean to imply, she goes on, trying to reassure us, that we in any way enjoy the painful experiences that shake us loose, or that we can see the beneficial ends from such means, or even that the process always results in freedom. Very often, a series of disasters or a period of violent emotions will cripple a one's strong personality. The point is only that given no other outlets, the unconscious will erupt all around us and that we can use this experience to find a better balance. Some decks call this card the house of the devil, but others call it the house of God, reminding us that either way, it is a spiritual force that destroys our psychic prisons. Maybe this is what people might call the infinite game of enlightenment, or at least a standing on the brink of something like this, readying ourselves to jump out of the tower of ego into the vast, never-ending waterfall of being. In a recent session with my current shrink, let's call him Michael, we discussed whether those bodies falling from what seems a great height, from their towering towers of ego, falling after being struck by failure or hardship or some kind of personal calamity, might indeed be a precondition for some kind of enlightenment or new understanding. I guess you would have to first define what you mean by enlightenment, he replies. So I do. I talk of how light seems to be important in the longer word, how it bounces in or out at us from within enlightenment, like a small child on a trampoline, suggesting that when we are enlightened, we are also somehow lighter, moving through the world in an easier or more vivid or more radiant or more agile, almost airy way, sprightly and nimble, rather than bogged down, falling, failing. So what you are saying is that the enlightened being, Martin summarizes, getting in on the groove, springs from existential branch to branch like a kind of squirrel. Exactly, I answer.
a much-needed squirrel-like antidote to all that dark, dull, heavy, gloomy, lumbering and lead-footed scrutinizing of the self and its ego-driven kerfuffle. But this is still to peg it in some sort of binary hole. Not this, but that. Not dark, but light. Not fire, but ice. Not ego, but no ego. When we are enlightened, though, surely we no longer feel the necessity to take positions. If life dishes us up one stew or soup rather than another, especially when it gives us food that we're not particularly fond of eating, we can perhaps take a more stoical approach, supposedly. Rather than compare it to the things we enjoy eating, the enlightened diner is happy to just sit and eat. At this point, perhaps because this is how therapy works at its best and worst, somewhat randomly, I reach for my phone and play for us that still, I think, hilarious opener to Woody Allen's Annie Hall, which sounds like this. There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. So what would those ladies have said if they were enlightened, Mike asks me. Sometimes I call my new shrink Magic Mike, but not to his face. Well, either they already are enlightened at this sort of uber yearning that we see here, this yearning with all the gusto, all the hoping against hope, the yearning that sometimes takes, takes us over, shows that they are enlightened, as enlightened as they're ever going to get, in that they are fully inhabiting their human beingness, in whichever way that gnarly, frustrated human beingness ends up being in the world. Or maybe they're just grumbling, as we all do, returning again and again to the burn of dissatisfaction, to some icy embargo on their pleasure. Which might point to their non-enlightenment, I guess. For why do they moan and complain, harping on over and over about the same dissatisfaction? Could they not go somewhere else for their next holiday? Maybe somewhere that serves the food they like? Or do some kind of Airbnb self-catering and make your own damn food? Or perhaps they might focus on enjoying each other's company, even though the food is crap. Something like that. Is it not more the case, he says, that when we can finally accept our finitude, and we don't know if these two women have, when we can finally accept our finitude, which is to say our mortality, when we can finally accept that every breath, no matter how fraught it is, when inhaled, exhaled, taking in oxygen, returning as carbon dioxide, every breath is life in its essence, living its way through us, which is, pardon my French, a fucking miracle. No, truly it is. And when we really get that, not in the sense of, oh yes, I'm going to die, blah, 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 but more in the sense of, oh, yes, I'm going to die, you too, when we really understand, when we fully take on board how everything is finite and yet also potentially joyously transient, then at this point we can deal with almost anything, even with the fact that the most precious relationships in our lives will at some time, maybe even soon, get terminated. Of course he doesn't say that. What he says is something more like, Yes, it's a funny old idea, this notion of enlightenment. Also, he says, it does seem to have something to do with desire, right? 
and the ways in which we feed ourselves or seek nourishment, as well as our expectations for where our nourishment should be coming from, who we expect to produce it for us, he adds, in that way that therapists like to preach, whilst giving the impression that this is not what they're doing in the slightest. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go away and leave you all alone? I got a bad desire. Oh, 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 I'm on fire. Tell me now, baby, is it good to you? Can it do to you the things that I do? Oh, no, I could take you higher. suffer is because we thirst, Siddhartha Gautama declared in what we might now call his first podcast episode, which was heard, like this podcast, by five weirdos, my term, a more modern term for ascetics, in a deer sanctuary. Imagine Buddha in Richmond Park talking about his four noble truths to a handful of disillusioned Jehovah Witnesses. Maybe it started like that. But unlike the five ascetics who listened to the tarot cure, Siddhartha's ascetics then relayed their liberating insights orally through multiple generations where they finally landed in our ears, Riff's Russian ears and my Polish-Lithuanian South African ones. The word that Siddhartha uses to denote this yearning and burning is tanha, which is sometimes translated as thirst or desire or even craving, although it ultimately stems from the Proto-Indo-European term for dry. Indeed, what is this thirst, this longing or desire, both physical and metaphysical, if not a recognition of something dry and arid within us, something seeking the consolation or solace of water? What is thirst but a sense of lack and a strong perception within that lack of what we might need in order to slake the thirst, in order to achieve our bio-psychosocial homeostatic resting point, which we sometimes refer to as being in or at peace? I love the fact that Robert Frost's surname, suggestive more of ice than fire, Frost, is also etymologically related to the word burn, Pruina in Latin means to freeze, or to that covering of ice crystals we call frost, but it is also related to the word pruna, which denotes a burning, live coal, or even a plum. Not surprisingly, for one whose name is both fire and ice, these seemingly oppositional elements are everywhere in Frost's poetry. There are fires lit for company from his poem in the homestretch that eventually escape from crannies in the stove and dance in yellow wrigglers on the ceiling. Blueberry plants that grow all the better for having been recently burned down. It must be on charcoal they fatten their fruit, he relates, in awe of the fire and ice that sometimes furnish us with something delicious. I taste in them sometimes the flavour of soot. Also, in the poem Bonfire, there is a fire that roars and mixes sparks with stars, sweeping round it with a flaming sword so that the trees stand back in a wider circle. 
Fear is closely related to fire in Frost's poetry. There are fears of fire and loss in The Gum Gatherer, the smell of fire drowned in rain in the poem Kitchen Chimney. An inward fire is also mentioned in a few different poems, such as in that primal vision of the poet sitting by a bush in broad sunlight, marvelling at the dust, which is to say us, taking in the sun. And from that one intake of fire, all creatures still warmly suspire. Catherine Kearns writes in a book about frost that, quote, like ice shrieking across a red-hot griddle, his poetry does indeed ride on its own melting. One cannot, and Frost has ensured this absolutely with his unstable irony, make a validated choice between the fire and the ice, or between the language so insistently mundane and the potent oversound. Fire and ice are, after all, the inextricable complementarities of one apocalyptic vision, the endlessly regenerative cycle of desire and hatred, maybe even self-hatred, that necessarily brings the poet and us to scourge our own voices, that speak as if they know so much, even whilst knowing next to nothing. One of my favorite Siddhartha grooves is the one that goes by the name of the Aditta Sutta, or the Fire Sermon, though really, like all good sermons, it is more of a rant. This ranty, almost Joe Rogan ranty podcast episode was supposedly directed at three brothers and their thousand or so followers who had, previous to meeting Siddhartha, committed themselves to worshipping fire. Not a bad choice to which we might direct our spiritual inclinations, as far as I'm concerned. That is, until Sid rocks up with his five ascetics, or maybe he had a few more at this point, and then proceeds to hit the, the bonfire bums with his special fiery Buddha sauce. Why are you worshipping fire when everything, absolutely everything inside you and out is burning? Is kind of the, the gist of this, right? Are you not burning to feel, to connect, to find pleasure and to escape pain? This whole existential merry-go-round, the whole shit show, is essentially a kind of conflagration, dudes. That's how I imagine him speaking to them. I myself chant or recite Siddhartha's call for awakening on a daily basis in a somewhat poemified version of the fire sermon, which sounds a bit like this. All is ardour, burning and blaze. Eye is ardour, ear is ardour, nose, lips, tongue, ardour, mind, ardour, body, ardour, burning, burning, burning away. Sound burning, scent burning, taste burning, touch burning, incandescent bonefires burning, burning pleasure, burning pain, either neither burning away. Feel the fire that burns through this hour, passion fire, aversion fire, delusion fire, all ablaze. Birth and death and aging fires, burning, burning, burning away. Contact, feeling, craving, takes us, calls to the awakened soul. Know, then free yourself from ardour, find some peace while burning away. The three fires referred to by Siddhartha are passion fire, aversion fire and delusion fire. The first fire in Pali is called Raga and it stands for desire, yearning and craving. I've got a lot of that going on at the moment. 
The second is called dosa and can also be translated as animosity, antagonism, hostility and all those other leave-me-alone vibes. Check. Raga and dosa are the push and pull of our lives. I want you, I don't want you. I want this, but I don't want that. I want that, but I don't want this. And then there is the delusion fire, which in Pali is called moha, often translated as distraction, confusion, disorientation, or befuddlement. Check. I like to think of the three fires in this way. Wanting, not wanting, and wanting for the wrong reasons. Some people seem to get caught in mainly one fire, but I am pleased to say that all three fires are currently burning in the chambers of my heart very fiercely at the moment. And this may be the case for you too if you're human in the way that I feel my human animal human being to be. I like the fact that there isn't ever the promise made by Siddhartha that we might be able to put out the flames, although the idea of Nirvana is suggestive of this, but rather it's all about being in the midst of the burning and somehow being okay with it. And to be okay with it sometimes, I guess, might involve a kind of numbness, an iciness, a deliberate turning or looking away from the thing that upsets us. This has sometimes been translated as detachment or estrangement or disenchantment with the source of the fire. Stephen Batchelor suggests that to find peace while burning away, we need to adjust our inner airflow, enabling the fires to burn like miniature suns or like the steady blue flame of a Bunsen burner, rather than the destructive flames of missiles currently raining over Kiev and other Ukrainian cities. The most troublesome missiles, however, at least for us foolish creatures, seem to lie in our own hearts. I read to Mike an email that I have recently written. Quote, I think it's fair to say that I have finally caught up with your headspace. I no longer love you. More and more, I hate you. I'm sure the sentiment is shared at this point. For hate is always easier to deal with than love which is why we live in a world of hating and detachment, sitting behind our screens, flicking from something painful to something easier on the eye or the nervous system. Hooray for the levers of hate, as well as icy cold detachment, which I'm sure, or perhaps I hope, will arrive in the space of your new relationship too at some point. For hate and indifference, those two sides of the Eros accounting system have been getting the job done for millions, if not billions, of years now. Those two antagonistic but also complementary states will probably finish us all off in time. End quote. Hmm. Painful to write, painful to receive, Mike says. I am, of course, paying him for stating the obvious, but that's okay. We need the obvious to be stated back to us, like a bolt of lightning to our desirous egos, again and again and again and again, until we finally get the unavoidable message of, let it go, or better still, let ego fall, let it go, let ego fall, tumble and crumble and so revert once more to the weary, bleary, confused earth from which it first sprung, or the rivers of energy and free-flowing matter that course all around us, together creating mud, and that enchanting, golem-like figure who inhabited a life with us for some time, only to return now to the primary material, the dust of creation. Allow this to happen. 
let the ego be burned to an umami-flavoured crisp, and then eat it, eat the self, swallow it and shit it out, and then start again, and maybe even get to enjoy the process, somewhat. Sometimes it's like someone took a knife, baby, edgy and dull, and cut a six-inch valley through the middle of my soul. And at night I wake up with a sheet soaking wet and a freight train running through the middle of my head, only you can cool my desire. Sometimes we need to be licked by the fires of a certain kind of sermon, inner or outer, again and again, which is perhaps the reason why the Buddha's sermons are chanted each morning by his modern-day devotees. The word sermon, from the Proto-Indo-European suffix sir, meaning to line up. A sermon, even this one, is really just a lineup of words, which like any lineup, trees, hedges, suspects in a police station, either communicate something to us or doesn't. I hope it's communicating something to you. Sometimes I write little sermons to myself on scraps of paper or as a phone note, even though I am repeating the messages I've heard or spoken before and in no particular new configuration. But this doesn't stop me. The other day, I furiously tapped the following quasi-banality into my portable screen whilst travelling on a bus. I wrote, You can only have what life offers. You can hope for more, aspire for more, even pray for more, but you will only get what is being offered to you as opposed to what the self or ego desires or believes should be offered to it. Until you can revel like Buddha, like Rumi, like E.T., not the alien, but the power of now guy, until you can revel only in the what is, you will continue to burn unceasingly and needlessly. The steady blue flame of the Bunsen burner, to use Stephen Batchelor's term, is within our grasp. And maybe, who knows, maybe it's just another word for emotional regulation, the holy cornerstone of well-being, which we're all working on in different ways. Yet, if this is the case, why do we still proceed to build bonfires in the living room? Are you, dear listener, able to revel Buddha-like, Rumi-like, Tolle-like, only in the what is, in the I am, rather than the things or the people or the aspirational goals for yourself that you yearn and burn for? If so, you, my friend, are probably quite close to enlightenment. Well done. I am nowhere near enlightenment, but I've still got a few more cards to draw from the pack which will hopefully get me a little bit closer to that illuminated way of being and doing and saying that many of us, including this self speaking here, so ardently aspire to embody in some way, in any way, really. Yeah.
Oh, 